Okay, if you've got a Bible, would you please open up to 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians, if you need a Bible down the middle aisle under the end seats, there's some Bibles and someone will pass you one. If you need one, just raise your hand. Uh, it's page 554, I believe. 1 Corinthians. Uh, about twice a year, we push back the chairs and clear the decks and bring in the mats from the gym behind us and we... Uh, set up some tables along the sides, and we uh, invite the community in to hear about Jesus. We do that through messy games and messy crafts and biscuit decorating, and uh, it's, our, it's our attempt at a messy church. And it's messy because there's crumbs on the floor and glitter and glue and sticky hands, and kids go away covered in stuff. Uh, and it's a wonderful opportunity for us to preach the gospel to the community in a setting where kids can come and have a lot of fun. Messy church. Today, we're beginning a study that might take us 30 or so sermons through uh, a letter written to the original, most notorious, messy church there's ever been. But they're not messy because of glue and glitter and biscuit crumbs. They are a messy church because of divisions and decadence and doctrinal deficiencies and disorder that was happening in their church. And what we're going to read as we work our way through 1 Corinthians is we're going to see how the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ can transform a messy church. And I have been praying about this and we've been praying about this together uh, as we thought about this series for a while. If we come to God's word humbly and reverently and excitedly over these next few months and we place ourselves under God's word, he will, we believe, by the power of his Holy Spirit, take these words and massage them deep into our hearts and our lives so that we too might be transformed by the grace of God, for the glory of God. Now before we read, let me just give you just the briefest of backgrounds on the church because I think it's helpful to set it in context and uh, we have already had in our read the Bible together that we do an overview of Corinthians which was back I think last Easter so you might have forgotten this but we'll just recount it because I think it just helps set the scene for what we're about to read. Corinthians was a strategic or Corinth was a strategic port city in Greece and it was on an important trade route for the Roman Empire, both east, west, and north and south. It was a large and brash metropolis. Uh, in the ancient world, it was huge. It was about a quarter of a million people. And it was uh, people that had come from all across the Roman Empire, uh, from many different outlying districts and places that spoke different languages and had different backgrounds and different ethnicities. And they'd all come together in what was this now a melting pot to hopefully flourish from the financial prosperity that, the, that Corinth enjoyed because it was a center of trade and commerce in the empire. It was a bustling, cutting-edge, happening city. It was a center for education. It was a center for arts. It was a center for entertainment. It was a center for uh, sports. And it was just a, a hub city, a place where people wanted to be. It was also awash with numerous temples to a variety of gods and different religions, so you could worship whoever you liked there. There was temples to uh, all sorts of 
ancient Roman gods, uh, particularly Aphrodite, is she the god of love, which meant that the city was uh, sex-crazed and lust-saturated. It was a city that was steeped in sexual immorality. Prostitution, particularly because of so many temple prostitutes, was rife. And it was a city where homosexuality was celebrated and enjoyed as well. So if you kind of think of Corinth, if I put it this way, it was the London, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of our modern world all rolled into one in an ancient form. That was the kind of place that it was. So it's no wonder that Paul will tell us in, in chapter 2 of this letter and in Acts 18 that he arrived in Corinth in weakness and fear and trepidation because this was a grand but pagan city. If you were to turn to Acts 18, you don't have to do that, but if you were to turn to Acts 18, you would be able to read about the, the city uh, that Paul came to and what happened when he arrived. He'd come from Athens. He'd arrived on his own in Corinth. He quickly teamed up with a couple known as Aquila and Priscilla, and they had begun to evangelize the city of Corinth, first in the synagogues, but then as the Jews rejected them, into the marketplace and into the Gentile world where the grace of God abounded and they saw significant success as many Corinthians of all classes, of all races, of all sexes, of all ages, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the diversity of the city was reflected in the diversity of the church. Rich and poor, old and young, free and slave. And Paul stayed for 18 months, which is particularly unusual given that he was on a missionary journey to plant churches. He stayed here for 18 months while the gospel went forward before eventually drawing his second missionary journey to an end and returning to Antioch. And he was in the city in about AD 50 and AD 51. Sadly, however, it wasn't long after his departure that the church began getting messy. While he was in Ephesus in about AD 54, he receives a report that he tells us in verse 11 of chapter 1 from Chloe's people that things are messy in the church. Things are not going well, in fact, things are downright ugly. Issues had flooded into this church, this young church, this vibrant church, was now awash with sin issues and problems between its members. And as you read through the, the book of 1 Corinthians, what you realize is that as you read, there's the, there's the potential to be simultaneously disgusted at their behavior and self-righteous. We've got to guard our hearts against that. But there was divisions, factions amongst church members as they argued who their favorite leader in the church was and why they were the best. There was decadence in the church, extreme sexual immorality amongst members that was even worse than what was going on in the world. Church members were suing one another in the secular court system. And there was the needs of the poor and the outcasts were remaining unmet because this church just lacked love. They didn't love one another. So there was great decadence. There was also doctrinal deficiencies. They had some wacky beliefs related to relationships and marriage and food and idols. And they were, as Paul is going to correct in, in chapter 15, they were fudging the doctrine of the resurrection. I mean, that's Christianity 101 and they were getting it wrong. Arguing that perhaps Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And there was disorder. They were perverting the Lord's Supper as they gathered together. We're going to do that afterwards, after this sermon. 
And what the Corinthians were doing is they were drinking all the wine. And they were going out a little bit worse for wear. I don't suggest we do that this morning as application of the message to Corinthians. But their Sunday gatherings were also a cacophony of chaos as different people wanted to bring stuff and make contributions and say stuff. And particularly the, the spiritual gifts were being misused and abused. Particularly the gift of tongues. Because the Corinthians thought that they had achieved boss level spirituality. And so therefore they could uh, engage with God at a higher level than everybody else. But these issues were really symptomatic of something that was going on at a deeper heart level. There was a disease that had infected the Corinthians that had sprouted all of these issues. These were symptoms of a deeper problem. So the question, the first question is, what was this disease that they were inflicted by? Well, the answer, as, you, as we read through and as we see Paul's correction to them, is that the surrounding city, this London, Los Angeles, Las Vegas of the ancient world had infiltrated the church and was shaping them. It was shaping the way that they thought. It was shaping the way that they lived, the the lust that they had for cultural values, for wealth, for power, for sexual satisfaction, for style over substance, to be upwardly socially mobile. The the liberal sexual ethics, all of these things that the, the culture held dearly had begun to infiltrate the church. And like floodwaters that you watch on your TV, a storm Dennis blows in and we see tragically the storms and the rivers rise and homes being destroyed and damaged as floodwaters rise. So as the floodwaters of the pagan culture had risen, they had flooded through the church and was beginning to destroy the church. One commentator puts it like this. He says, the problem in Corinth was not that the church was in Corinth, but that there was too much of Corinth in the church. That was the issue. They had taken on the characteristics of the world around them and lost their distinctiveness. And in doing so, they had stopped to be an instrument of grace to one another in the church, and they had ceased to be an instrument of light and hope to to a world that was lost in the darkness of sin. There was no gospel beacon that was shining. It was tragic. For such a young church. But the problems that dog the Corinthians actually dog us today. Sometimes when you approach a book of the Bible, it's, it, it can be difficult to sort of think about the setting and, the, and how far away it was and 2,000 years and how different it is to us today. But when you read Corinthians, you realize that they were struggling with the same things that we are confronted with. 1 Corinthians, in both the context that it's set in and in the content that Paul is going to teach us, speaks right into us because today, the 21st century Britain is like Corinth. We are awash with liberal sexual ethics. We are a country that loves power and wealth. We want style over substance. We want to be upwardly socially mobile, just like the Corinthians. And so churches, even good churches, even churches that teach the Bible, can be unwittingly flooded with 21st century cultural values. We need to hear Paul correct us in Corinthians. So what's the remedy? Well, we're going to discover 
the beginning of the remedy in verses 1 to 9 now as we read. This is the opening greeting of the letter, but it's more than just the conventional, formal kind of stuff that you see at the beginning of letters. Paul is harnessing his words here to do something. He wants to accomplish something, even in these opening nine verses. And what we're going to see in these opening nine verses is the remedy in, in summary form for the problems that beset the Corinthians. And then he's going to spend 16 chapters unpacking that remedy and applying the balm of it to their lives. So let me read from verses 1 to 9, and then we'll jump in with three observations. This is God's word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in Every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you catch the remedy? Ten times in nine verses, Paul tells us or makes reference to Jesus. Ten times in nine verses, Paul makes reference to Jesus because what the Corinthians need more than anything else, what is the remedy for what ails them, is Jesus. And what we need more than anything else, what the remedy for what ails us is, surprisingly, Jesus. God intends for the gospel of Jesus Christ to permeate our lives to such a degree in every part and every dimension of both our individual lives and our corporate life together so that we live in the light of the gospel we revel in the light of the gospel so that we remain distinct in a world that is going to hell it's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives individually and together as a church that will be the remedy for worldliness, for ungodliness. That will save us from being Corinthian. You see, for Paul, Jesus Christ and the gospel was first and foremost. He's going to say time and time again throughout this book, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Here's the thing of first importance. It's about Jesus 
And he wants us to catch that as well. Because if, if Jesus is not first and foremost in our lives, if he is not permeating down every part and dimension of our lives, then we will be tempted to cave into the pressures of this world. We'll be tempted to compromise to the standards of this world. And we'll imbibe its values. And so what will happen if Jesus is not first, we will find ourselves plagued by fear of man, by insecurity, by discontentment. We'll look for financial prosperity as the highest goal. We'll look for sexual satisfaction as the highest good. We will chase after style over substance because we want to look good on the outside to everybody else. And slowly we will be squeezed and conformed into the world's, into the world's jelly mold and we will, it will then pop us out and we'll just be a wobbling wreck. Unless Jesus is first. But if we resist and escape the controlling pressures to capitulate and compromise and conform because Jesus is first... If we know who we are in relation to him, if we know who we are in, in fellowship with him, if we imbibe, imbibe his truth and his values and we resist and reject the world's narrative and the world's standards and the world's values, we will grow in Christ-likeness and we will be distinct from the world around us and then we will be able to have an impact on the world rather than it having an impact on us. And that's Paul's aim here in these opening nine verses he wants us to see who we are in Jesus now given the struggle and the situation in Corinth we might think that he would jump straight into correction like he does in Galatians but he doesn't does he He doesn't begin verse 10 doesn't read or verse whatever it would be four doesn't read I can't believe that you're so sinful he doesn't begin with correction. Neither does he begin with instruction. Let me just tell you what you need to do. He begins with encouragement. Encouragement for us to see clearly and to get clarity on who we are in Jesus and what difference that should make every single day in every single way. And there's three things that he points us to, three ways in which we are in relationship with Jesus. That he wants us to grab hold of because if we do, we will be different. First one is this. Jesus has called us. Jesus has called us. It's the second word of the letter. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul knew that he was called. He'd had a Damascus Road experience and he had been saved and transformed by Jesus Christ. And he was crystal clear about who he was in Jesus Christ. He was an apostle, but it wasn't a badge to wear of honor. It was an office to exercise in service. He was a servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle, a messenger, charged with the job of carrying the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world. And he knew who he was, but then he goes on to tell the church who they are. Look at verse 2 with me. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. So he says, not only have I been called, but you've been called too. You've been called to be saints. You've been called to be God's people. He's called you savingly. God has taken the initiative and called these bunch of people to himself. 
Now, the call of God is nothing like our call. So in our house, Claire calls for dinner. And despite having three teenage sons, it takes a while for them to arrive at the dinner table. One of them pops in the loo for 10 minutes. Someone wants to do something else and then do the other thing that they were hoping to do before dinner. And eventually, we all end up at the table together. We call one another, don't we? Well, we might not do it like on a phone, but we text one another. And then we wonder, why aren't they responding? Because our call goes sometimes unanswered. Sometimes invitations go unaccepted. But God's call is a summons. When he speaks and calls, people immediately respond. When he calls, it's effectual. When he calls, it effects change. Something happens when God calls. Look with me because you can see this three times in the text. In verse 2, when God calls, what does it say? You're called to be saints together with all those who in every place now call upon the name of Jesus. When God calls, people respond by calling out to Christ. When God calls... We respond immediately. We respond in repentance and faith when he calls to us. And then we continue to respond to him for help and for guidance and for strength and for the riches of his grace that we might honor him in the way that we live. He calls and we call back. But without the initial call of God, we could never call back to him. We could never call on the name of the Lord. But when God calls... He breaks our resistance and our hard-heartedness and our opposition to Jesus. When God calls, he rouses us from the dead to life. When God calls, he opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. When God calls, he changes our hearts. When God calls, he enables us to call on the name of the Lord. God's call, we might say it this way, God's call creates our call. If we don't understand that, we will get our worship of God wrong. If we don't understand that, we will misplace our worship. Just look down with me uh, at verses 26 to 31, for Paul says this. uh, This will be a sermon in a few weeks' time, but we'll just touch on it now. He says, for consider your calling. Same word, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. He chose and he called. He chooses and he calls. The calling of God is the outworking of his sovereign choosing of us. He chooses us. He chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, and here's the reason, here's why God chooses and calls, so that no one can boast. If you are here this morning and you think you made it to Jesus in your own strength and in your own power and you responded to him, you could go away and worship yourself in the mirror. But no one ever has. Instead, because of God's choice and his call, we have been brought near to Christ. We have been brought to Jesus who, because of his righteousness, has made us righteous in the sight of God. So that we might boast, as Paul will go on to say in verse 31, we might boast in the Lord. 
If we don't understand that when God calls, we respond by calling on the name of the Lord. If we get it the wrong way around and somehow think that we call and then he responds, we'll end up boasting. But Paul says we get it the right way around and we'll boast rightly in the Lord. So when God calls, people call on the name of the Lord. But here's another observation, verse 2 again. When God calls, people are sanctified. Now, when we're talking about sanctified here, we're not talking about the normal way that it's perhaps used in Scripture, which means this ongoing process of becoming more and more holy. That is a true use of the word sanctified. But here, in verse 2, it means something more definitive and decisive. It's actually in the past tense. So it's something that has already happened to us, not an ongoing process. We have been sanctified and called to be saints. And sanctified and saints and holy are all from the same root word in the Hebrew. So when God calls, people are changed. That's what Paul is saying here. People are sanctified. People are made holy. We're set apart for Christ. We become his treasured possession as God led Egypt out of, uh, as God led the Israelites out of Egypt in Exodus 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai and he, in verse 6 of, of chapter 19, declares, he says, you will be a holy nation, you'll be my treasured possession. And then we saw when we studied First Peter, Peter takes all of those names and titles that God bestowed upon Israel and he gives them to the church. So now we're his treasured possession, we're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We've been sanctified. We've been set apart. We've been called out of the world into the kingdom of light. We've been called out of death into life. We've been made the family and the people of God. And now we're called to live out our identity as God's set apart ones, as God's holy ones for his glory. And when people are called by God, they are changed by God. But there's something else in verse 9 as well. When God calls people come into fellowship with Jesus. Did you see that? To be called is to be taken out of relationship with this world and brought into relationship with Jesus. It's the being grafted into the vine. We studied John 15 the first three weeks of this year. When, when God calls, he takes us and he grafts us in, into fellowship with Jesus. That place where we find true life, and joy and fullness of joys and pleasures forevermore at his right hand the trouble was with the corinthians they forgot all this they forgot that they were called they thought they had done it they thought that they had reached boss level superiority spirituality and because they had forgotten that they had been called they were enticed away then by inferior pleasures the fleeting temporal pleasures of this world but God wants to remind us this morning that Christians for the church is supposed to be so connected to Jesus that we experience and then also display the riches of his grace in our lives, individually and corporately, so that it's attractive to the world around us, so that they look at us and they go, hmm, there's something real about these Christians, something that they've got that I don't have. And we have the opportunity to point them towards the Savior, the light of the world. We've been called to do that. Second thing we see is not only have the Corinthians been called, but they have been blessed. If you, imagine if you had never read the book of Corinthians before. 
and you began reading verses 1 to 9, you would get to the end of verse 9 and you think, wow, these Corinthians are pretty good. They are working it out. What an outstanding job they're doing. They are not lacking any spiritual gift that God has graced them. He's blessed them. The testimony of Christ is confirmed among them. They're waiting for Jesus. They're guiltless. Uh, well, they're in fellowship with Jesus. What a wonderful church. I want to go and be part of that church. Who, want, who wouldn't want to be a part of this church? But then you get to verse 10 and you realize, oh, they're like every other church on the planet. Imperfect. Sin-stained. You quickly realize that they're tragically flawed and they're riddled with problems. And in fact, actually, as you read on, after verse 10, you begin to think, these are the last people on the face of the planet that deserve Paul's encouragement. He should have begun with, I can't believe you're all such a bunch of horrible sinners. But he didn't. We might expect Paul to omit the thanksgiving and just jump straight in. But remarkably and genuinely, he celebrates the grace of God in their lives and he gives thanks to God for them. And in fact, as you read about the very specific things that he draws attention to and he gives thanks for, we'll uh, that, and that would be not lacking in any spiritual gifts, enriched in all speech and in all knowledge, we'll discover as we go through the letter that those are the very things that were causing him the most grief. And yet he can give thanks to God for them. And the language that he uses, he makes three statements. He says, that, I thank God for the grace given to you. I thank God that he's enriched you in every way. I thank God that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. But his emphasis is not on them, it's on God. And the grace of God at work in them. The lavish generosity that God has poured out on this messy church. Because Paul recognizes that there is no explanation for the establishment and the continued existence of that church than the grace of God at work in them. There's no other explanation except for the generosity of God's grace that has been poured out on them. Everything they have is by grace. In fact, he's going to remind them in chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you didn't receive from God? All their giftedness, all their blessings, all the spiritual gifts, everything that they had, they didn't deserve. But by the grace of God, they were blessed. Likewise, everything that we have, everything that we have as individuals or as corporately as a church, everything that we enjoy, even those things that God is using in our lives that are difficult so that he can shape us to the likeness of Jesus, all of those things come to us by the grace of God. Christ who, who died and has been resurrected in that act has opened for us the storehouse of grace. So that now, as Peter says in 2 Peter, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. It's all of grace. Everything we have comes to us through Christ Jesus. And in giving us his son, God has given us everything. He has not withheld one thing that we need for life with him. But the Corinthian problem was that they'd forgotten this. They believed that they were special. 
They believed that they were superior, and so they patted themselves on the back instead of thanking God. And their pride, their spiritual pride, was ravaging and destroying the church. But it's interesting to note, Paul doesn't deny their giftedness. He doesn't deny their blessedness. He just wants them to look beyond the gifts to see the giver. And in fact, Paul's ability to do that himself and to give thanks to God for these Christians says much about the character and the perspective of Paul. Oh, he's going to speak strongly to them. He's going to rebuke them, but he never ceases to be grateful for them. And it's a great lesson for us. We might struggle with people in this church. We might think they rub me up the wrong way. They just get on my nerves. They think they're so good. They think they're better than me. That might be true. But if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, we can give thanks to God for them no matter what is going on. Because if they are the people of God, they're only the people of God because of the grace of God. And every single person who is in Christ is there because there is grace in their lives that we can point out and celebrate and give thanks for. And Paul wants this messy church and Paul wants us to know that the grace of God in Jesus Christ at work in them is more fundamental and more foundational to their identity than all of their sins put together. Let me say that again because that's the most important bit of this morning. The grace of God is more foundational and more fundamental to our identity than the sins and the shortcomings and the failures that we are dogged by. If we are in Christ, that trumps everything. We're blessed. We're called, we're blessed, but that's not it. Finally, thirdly, the grace of God that called them and blessed them is the grace of God that will keep them to the end. Jesus keeps. Look at verses 7 to 9 again with me. So Paul says, you've received everything. You're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this is what Christ will do. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end? Who will keep you to the end? The end, not only does God call and bless, but he keeps. He will keep us, he will keep the Corinthians and he will keep us in fellowship with Jesus until Jesus comes back, wraps up this age and inaugurates the next age and we're with him forever. He will keep us till the end. But he's not just going to keep us. Look Look at how he defines us as well. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless. Guiltless. He will sustain you, Corinthians, till the end, guiltless. Think of it. (laughs) Think of it. With all of their divisions, arguing about who's the best leader. With all of their decadence, this man sleeping with his mother-in-law. With all of their deficiencies doctrinally about marriage and idols, with all of the disorder that's going on, Paul says, he'll keep you guiltless. With all of their ungodliness, with all of their idolatry, with all of their immorality, Paul says, he will keep them guiltless. (laughs) 
That is amazing, I think. Guiltless? If you were to play Mallet's Mallet, and probably most of you are not the age to remember that, but if you were to play a word association game where you mustn't pause, hesitate, or you get a bash on the head with a foam mallet, and someone said, Corinthians, your first response would not be guiltless. But it is to Jesus. And it is for us this morning as well. If you are here this morning and you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, Jesus has borne your sins away on the cross and exchanged them for his righteousness and he declares you to be guiltless. And he will keep you so until the day where you see him face to face. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, when he took upon himself all of our sins and guilt, he bore it away as far as the east is from the west. And he made us saints. He sanctified us. He made us his set apart holy ones. He made us his treasured possession. And Paul tells us here now that there is nothing that will change that. He will keep us guiltless until the end. There is nothing that will change his view of us. He will not change his mind about you. He will not renege on his declaration of your righteousness. He will not change his mind and say, oh, sorry, new information and evidence has come to light. And actually, you're a stinking sinner who deserves hell. He already knows that, and yet he saved you from it. Now, How can I be so sure? Because in verse 9, Paul says this, God is faithful. How do we know he's going to keep us guiltless to the end? Because he staked his whole character and nature and reputation on it. He's declared himself to be faithful. And so he will keep us guiltless because he is faithful. He is a, if I put it like this, he's a present tense God. He's a God who works in the present tense He's always the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changing. He's immutable. He's utterly dependable. He is uh, throughout all time and eternity. He has remained the same. There's never a Monday morning where he has woken up, looked out of the window and thought, oh, I don't want to be God this morning. And what he says, he will do. And so when he says he will sustain us and keep us guiltless, he says, and you can guarantee it because I am faithful his very faithfulness obligates him to keep us his character is at stake because if he doesn't keep us faithful to the end and guiltless he's failed and he's not God and that faithful that faithfulness of God is what gives us assurance as we heard about last week because it doesn't rest on us it rests on God. But the Corinthians had forgotten this. They thought that they were, they were responsible for their own faith. They thought that they were responsible for their own walk. And so they had grown cold and weak and really useless because they had taken their eyes off of Jesus and fixed it firmly on themselves. But here Paul says, no, let me get your eyes back in the right place. Look at the God who has called you. Look at the God who has blessed you. Look at the God who is keeping you. And let that breed faith and joy in your hearts. 
Martin Luther, the old German monk, once wrote this in, granted his commentary to the Romans, or on Romans, about faith. He says, faith is a living and daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on, uh, would stake his life to a thousand times on it. It makes men glad. Faith, faith in God makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and with all of his creatures. Knowing that God has called us, knowing that God has blessed us, knowing that God is keeping us will breed faith that will make us bold and glad and happy in dealing with God and with one another and with the world outside of us. And so my prayer, our prayer, as we work through this book of 1 Corinthians is that we would rest in the faithfulness of God. We would rest in the grace of God. That we will rest in the promises of God. The one who has called us. The one who has blessed us. The one who is keeping us. So that we may feel as though we're falling apart at the seams. But we'd see God is holding us. He's called us to be sanctified saints. Not based on our works or our efforts but on the grace of God. He's blessed us with gifts and abilities that are not self-made. We're not self-sufficient. They're not for self-glorification. They're for the, by and for the grace of God and the glory of God. And he's keeping all of our futures, individually and corporately, not because we have enough merit, but because of the grace of God. Paul wants us to see the remedy for everything that ails us is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is the best news imaginable and it's to shape everything because it changes everything and it makes us bold and glad and happy and holy if we get hold of it let's pray